What can we learn from Estonia? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Pete Betke and Matt Mitchell. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today our guests are Pete Betke and Matt Mitchell. Pete is a professor of economics and philosophy at George Mason University, the BBNT Professor for the Study of Capitalism and the Director of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study of Philosophy, Politics and Economics at the Mercatus Centre at George Mason University. Matt is a senior fellow in the Centre of Economic Freedom at the Fraser Institute, and prior to joining the Institute, Matt was a long-serving senior fellow at the Mercatus Centre at George Mason University, where he remains an affiliated senior scholar. He's also a senior research fellow at the Knee Centre at West Virginia University. I should say, Pete, welcome back to The Curious Task, and Matt, welcome to your first time on The Curious Task. Thanks so much. Great to be here. It's great to have you both on. I think this is going to be a very exciting conversation. Um, we do base each episode on a theme in question and go over the answers and conversation takes us. Our question and episode title today is, what can we learn from Estonia? And this will essentially be a great opportunity to discuss a book you are both co-authors of called The Road to Freedom, Estonia's Rise from the Soviet Vassal State to One of the Freest Nations on Earth. I think the best way to do this is really just tour through uh, what ha- what's going on in the book and so on and so forth and and really what you guys found out and and get into all that great stuff. But before we get into the contents of the work, I always like to ask what the inception of a type of project like this was or the inspiration for it. Uh, since I have two of the three co-authors here, uh, let me start with with you, Matt. Do you want to talk a bit about how the project came together, how you folks decided to work on it together? If there was a moment of inspiration, I'm always curious to know what what the background is before a work like this comes together. Sure. So this is part of a broader project called the Realities of Socialism that the Fraser Institute has commissioned. And it's uh, one of, I think, five uh, books that we have. Uh, others cover uh, another book by the same authors on Poland. Uh, we have books on um, Sweden and Denmark, which are not socialist states, but are often perceived as socialist states. Um, we have uh, a, a small study on pol- that uh, polls perceptions of socialism. Uh, Jim Otteson has a nice uh, introduction to the idea of socialism. Uh, we have a, a book on um, uh, Singapore, which again is not socialist, but it actually sort of demonstrates uh, in some ways the opposite of socialism. Uh, and the basic inception of the project is, you know, we are now living in a time when about half of uh, the, of Americans, Canadians, uh, Brits, Australians uh, have no working memory of actual socialism, right? Uh, they were born too late to remember the the watching the Berlin Wall fall. And so given this uh, and given the recent rise in interest in socialism, we thought we'd dig in and explore what is actual socialism as, it, as the actual experiment um, you know, played out in Eastern Europe and elsewhere. How to, what, what is, what's the nature of it? And then also what are people's perceptions of it? So I mentioned the poll. One thing that is uh, relatively alarming is uh, about half of young people, uh, to, I think the ages are... Uh, uh, 18 to, uh, or or 25 to 35, somewhere around there, uh, actually when asked, you know, what do you think is the ideal system? They'll say socialism. So we really wanted to explore and explain what actual socialism was like. And then as the case of Estonia is particularly interesting because they went 
uh, you know, as far down the road to socialism as possible. And then they turned around and went as far down the road to freedom as uh, possible. And so how that happened and the consequences, I think, is a really fascinating story. Great. Pete, is there yeah. anything you'd like to add to that? As far no, as well, I, I agree with everything Matt said and, and, and especially, you know, the whole broader importance of the project on the realities of socialism. Um, because uh, if, you, if you look at my last single authored book, it's, it's called The Struggle for a Better World. And it begins with a quote from Hayek about tacit presuppositions. And one of the essays in that book talks about the reception of Milton Friedman's free to, uh, free to choose compared with capitalism and freedom. And when capitalism and freedom came out, Friedman's ideas were considered crazy. And that's because the tacit presuppositions of the time uh, were dominated by other styles of thinking, not viewing the market as a, a potential uh, mechanism to address social ills, but instead that government was a corrective. When Free to Choose came out, it became an international bestseller. And the reason is, is that the tacit presuppositions had shifted over that generation. And the world that Matt and I and you, Alex, and everyone exists in now is one where the tacit presuppositions of the Friedman time have now flipped back to a much more uh, different sort of era. And we have to sort of address those issues of those tacit presuppositions. And one of the main one is to address the issue about socialism and what it means, uh, because there's a lot of debate about that. You know, people will say, oh, you know, uh, I want socialism, but I don't want socialism like Stalinism. Don't tell me that, you know, that's what was in the past. I want, you know, democratic socialism. But, you know, one of the problems that you have to come to grips with is the earlier socialists didn't view themselves as Stalinists until Stalinism evolved. It's not like, you know, we're there at the beginning of the thing and say, how can we, you know, like, you know, run terror over the rest of the population? They all had these dream aspirations that are the same dream aspirations that young people today have. And what Matt and I try to show in here is that the consequences of a particular set of policies that require state control end up by, in fact, exacerbating the very social ills that we're trying to overcome. Whereas if you use liberal means, uh, including the market mechanism and voluntary interaction with each other, you can actually come closer to achieving the very goals that young people have about eradicating uh, extreme poverty, about uh, having greater equality, uh, you know, this and, you know, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but this is one of the reasons why Estonia is so fascinating is you know, you look at the way in 1990 as a baseline and how many people lived in poverty versus how many live in poverty today or, you know, less than $10 a day, let's say, is I think the figure that we use in the book. Um, and or you look at their economic freedom index, where they la landed in the world in 1990, uh, where they are today. Right. And so, you know, they had a peak of being the eighth freest economy. Now they're number 12, at least in 2021. Um, but then, you know, you sit back and people say, oh, that's just about, you know, economics or whatever. Well, then look at personal liberties and you look at the human you know, human development index or whatever. And you see the way that Estonia is actually number three in the world in personal freedoms. And so it's an amazing story of having gone from a world which was existing in a totalitarian hell to actually living in this freedom and the consequences of living in the freedom in terms of 
not only their material well-being, but also their uh, political, legal, and social freedoms. Mm-hmm. No, I think that's great context, Pete. I also like something you said there too, which is the idea that, you know, this isn't like sort of a Marvel comics movie where you have evil people rubbing their hands together yeah. and saying, hey, we're going to go do this stuff. It's sometimes easy to think of history as just sort of stakes on the road and milestones, but we're talking decades upon decades and hundreds of years often when we look at a country's history. So that's one thing I appreciate about you guys doing that longitudinal look and even providing a bit of the historical context in this paper, basically to talk about, you know, the, the real people involved in this stuff and the fact that over time, uh, these countries and these institutions changed. Um, and, and actually, well, why don't we segue right into that then? Because um, I, I want to spend a, a good chunk of our time from that sort of what you outlined in the uh, book slash paper as the, the 1944 to 91 sort of um, USSR period. But um, I'll, I'll toss it back to you, Matt. Would, would you mind sort of, um, and again, I'll always remind listeners, there's a lot more you can obviously read in in the the work that we're always citing here. So we're not asking you to read the whole you know work here for us word by word. But could you summarize some highlights of the pre nineteen forty four period? Like what 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 kind of Estonia did we find before uh, the USSR's uh, involvement and, and grasp over that country? And then we'll, we'll we'll get to that. But a little bit of prehistory would be nice. Sure, sure, yeah. And I think the prehistory ends up uh, helping us understand how they made the transition. Um, better than others. So we say in the book that it's an ancient people in a young country. Um, and I think that does characterize it uh, pretty well. So the Estonians as an ethnic uh, you know, grouping, they're one of the oldest in Europe. Um, and they are, you know, for those of you who are not familiar, and, and many of us are not familiar, you know, before reading about this, are not familiar with the small country uh, um, in Eastern Europe, it's sort of at a crossroads, a literal crossroads. So it's, uh, you know, Northeast Europe, right across the Gulf of Finland from Finland. Um, it's, you know, if you're familiar with, uh, uh, you know, cultures clash idea, it's, you know, right smack dab where cultures clash. Um, and there were ancient East, West and North, South, South trade routes there. And one part of the story is that for, you know, millennia, they were the, they were the subject of both voluntary and involuntary trade. So, because of these trade routes and their proximity to water, you know, they were very active traders. But also because of their proximity, they they're surrounded essentially by enemies. Uh, over the centuries, they were invaded by pretty much everyone: uh, the Swedes, the Russians, the uh, the Poles. Uh, you know, back and forth, uh, the Germans. Uh, and some of these invasions were a little bit more uh, prosperous than others. Uh, you know, they, they credit the Swedes actually with giving them uh, some measure of economic freedom uh, and some you know, property rights and prosperity. Uh, the German um, occupation was much less uh, uh, beneficial and they, they still had carried quite a bit of resentment uh, against the Germans uh, for a long time. Uh, so, Essentially, uh, by the mid of the 19th century, they were in Russian hands. Uh, they were part of the Russian Empire. And it was at that point that what sort of became known as the, um, the, the National Awakening began. And so this was a cultural and then later a political movement to sort of recognize that, hey, we're a people and we're a country. We should, rec you know, we should have uh, nurture our, our culture, our language. They have, uh, you know, their own language. Um, and our, our history, and then later the idea that maybe we should even have some autonomy. So they, uh, like others, they took advantage of the chaos of the um, Russian Revolution to uh, declare their autonomy. Um, there was uh, 
a war with the Russians in order to gain their independence. Uh, also, the, the Germans were taking the opportunity to try to maybe uh, take over as well. But they gained their independence in 1920. Um, uh, Lenin's uh, Russia slash Soviet Union recognized their independence, uh, guaranteed them you know, complete autonomy. They, uh, the uh, Russians would no longer interfere with them. And so they had about 19 years of independence. Um, then, and it was a mixed bag during that time. You know, they basically were relatively prosperous. Um, the, as it was, common during the 1920s and 30s. There was sort of this creeping um, um, autocracy. And so they they ended up with, towards the end of the period, you know, really an autocrat in control of the um, government, uh, not permitting uh, much political freedom. But uh, they still were generally, you know, prospering um, and sort of moving towards a freer society. 1939 is, uh, August 1939 is the big important date. Um, August 23rd, 1920, uh, 1939 to be precise, um, von uh, Ribbentrop, the, uh, Ru- the German foreign minister, lands in Moscow on that date. He's greeted by six giant swastikas that the Soviets had actually just repurposed from an anti-Nazi propaganda film studio but now they were displaying them proudly uh, to welcome their new allies. Um, he, von Ribbentrop was rushed to the Kremlin. He meets with Stalin himself and they form, they sign the uh, Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. Molotov, by the way, was the Russian uh, foreign minister. He got his job in part, he was, he was relatively new to the job because his uh, predecessor was Jewish and Stalin had fired him as a conciliatory gesture to, to Hitler. Uh, afterwards, they, uh, the, the pact uh, openly commits uh, Russia and Germany to non-aggression, but it has these secret protocols, which are the worst kept secret in the, in the uh, um, Cold War and, and World War II, and that they were out pretty quickly, but they were denied by, the, uh, by both sides, but by the Soviet Union for five decades. And these secret protocols agree to break up Europe, and they say... Um, Germany gets um, every cut. We, we draw a line down the middle of Poland. Germany gets um, the Western half and um, uh, the Soviet Union gets the Eastern half as well as all as Latvia, Estonia and Lithuania and, and uh, all these other countries in the Eastern Bloc. And that part is uh, vehemently denied by the Russians, but it's very important that that was uh, sort of the formation. So um, afterwards, Stalin toasts, to Hitler's health, they signed the pact, and um, but within a month, the two sides invade Poland. Um, they held a, a, a joint uh, parade, and then they move on to Estonia. So you've got 160,000 uh, Soviet troops on one side of the border, 16,000 Estonians on the other, and they say, we'd like to come in and protect you. <laughs> and <laughs> Estonians say, uh, Okay, and so the, the three Baltic states um, essentially capitulate, and uh, within, a, within a year, they are part of the Soviet Union. The, the actual uh, contrived elections to allow them to become part of the Soviet Union, um, there's a number of interesting things about that. So for one thing, um, 
they didn't have a secret ballot. People had to cast votes in uh, in the open. The parliament actually was uh, when they cast votes. There were armed uh, Soviet uh, <laughs> Red Army troops in the parliament. Um, the election results were released accidentally before the votes had even taken place. <laughs> and uh, in one place, I think it was Latvia, um, there was a province where the turnout was an extraordinary 120% of the population. It's <laughs> basically just this contrived election where they volunteer to, to come become a part of the Soviet Union under extreme pressure. Um, and so that's, that's how they came to be. Um, and then I'll, I'll just add one other important point about this ancient culture it's got a lot of interesting characteristics, but perhaps the most interesting and what becomes important is they have this singing tradition. So uh, they have these big summer festivals um, and it happens all year round, but especially in the summer and they go out into the forest and they hold hands and in call and response fashion, they sing these ancient songs um, of their people. And this is a very important part of their culture and, and who they are. That, excellent. Thank you, Matt. You, I think you went through pretty much most pillars that I wanted to talk to as far as that, that sort of pre-1944 discussion. Uh, before we move into the, the, the Soviet era, if you will, uh, Pete, I'm not sure if you had anything you wanted to add just, as far as I uh, just that sort of discussion. Yeah, one thing again, because it's been forgotten, is that, um, you know, as Gorbachev started his reforms in the Soviet Union, what was called perestroika was economic restructuring and glasnost was public frankness. And so what Matt's talking about is around 1987, there now started to be discussions. Hey, folks, you know, what about this pact that, you know, divided up Europe between Hitler and Stalin? That, at that time, the technical name is, is, as Matt put it, but at the time in popular rendering, it was just the Stalin-Hitler pact, basically the alliance of these guys. And so eventually the Soviet Union admitted that this was an illegitimate pact. And so there's there's some funny things about this and some very tragic things about it. One of the funny things about it was is that it started a, a series of a Russian joke, which was that, um, you know, the, the, the Latvians, Lithuanians and Estonians declared, hey, if this pact is illegal, then we should be, you know, independent. So we don't want to be part of the Soviet Union anymore. And so Gorbachev then said, wait, 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 wait. You have to pay reparations for all of the investments that we've made in your country during the period of time, right? And so they, they the joke went is that you know when the Hungarians wanted to go, uh, you know, free Khrushchev sent in the tanks. When the the Czechs wanted to go free Brezhnev sent in the tanks. When uh, the the Baltic states wanted to go free Gorbachev sent in the accountants. Okay, so, but the reality was, is that now comes the sad part of it, which is that Gorbachev wasn't going to let them go. All right. And so actually the hardliners in the communist country shut down an independence movement by sending paratroopers in with sharpened. It's one of the more violent episodes of the Gorbachev period, actually. And that was Gorbachev that ordered that, not you know, hardliners that pulled a coup on Gorbachev. That's for another four years, you know, but this is at this time when this is going on. And so, you know, it was a, a, a you know, it's a, it's just a very, our story that we tell in here, if I could get people to, to get it, I think it's an extremely tragic and yet ultimately triumphant story in political, economic and, and social history. And, uh, and I hope that the uh, readers get a sense of that. 
uh, because the tragedy that this is true of Poland as well, that Poland and Estonia suffered under, uh, you know, both the Nazis and then the, the, the communists. So both the totalitarian experiences crushed on top of these societies. And then for those societies to be able to come out from underneath of that rubble and then build themselves up, I think is, is just an amazing story. And again, I, I know we're not talking about Poland, but I just want to put a, a, a fine point on this for listeners. The Polish economy is going to outstrip the United Kingdom economy, you know, like in the next year or two, not in 20 years. This isn't like a Samuelson prediction about the Soviet economy. It's actually right. happening right now, right in front of us. And, you know, that would have been unfathomable, you know, 25 years ago. And yet it's happening. Part of that is maybe because of Britain doing some stupid policies. So I'm not saying it's all because, but Poland's per capita income is just amazing what they've been able to pull off. And it's the same thing, uh, you know, with Estonia. And, I, and I'll end just with a comparison because I think these infographics that are involved in the in this project that Fraser put together are very, very important. And for anyone who's an economic educator, they come in short bursts and it'd be very useful to use in class. But one of the things that Matt and I do in the in the uh, book on Estonia is we do the comparison group, uh, you know, with Finland. And so we look at the way which Estonians and Finns were when they were independent. So that period of time you were just talking about, in which at that time, for example, they're basically comparable with Estonia a little bit better than Finland, okay? And then what happens is you get the communist experience and Finland goes to here and Estonia's here. And then what you have in the post-communist period is a leveling out again. And it's like right in front of you, you can see it and everything like that. I mean, you know, we use mainly descriptive statistics in this, but actually if you're statistically savvy, uh, there's in both the Poland experiment and this one, we do do a lot of what would be called event studies where you slice the data at a particular point in time, and then you see the difference in difference that takes place. And there also is, you know, control group comparisons, right? Which is, you know, and, and some sort of a, what would be called synthetic controls. I mean, we don't do all of that stuff, but our, our approach would lend someone to do it. So uh, I think uh, even sophisticated statistical social scientists should be very intrigued by the data that, that is provided in these monographs. Excellent. No. And actually, Pete, some some of the things you're saying there, especially actually, that kind of provides a nice broad brushstroke as to some stuff I want to get a little deeper into. So as far as uh, what you guys measure, the methods in the book and so on and so forth, uh, specifically, I want to start with that, that Soviet period from 1944 to 91 uh, for Estonia. And uh, Matt, why don't we get in, actually deeper into that then the kind of stuff Pete was basically just leading on to like, can you can you sort of describe uh, you know, the, the political, social, and economic type of circumstances that uh, Estonia faced between 1944 to 1990, uh, 1991. Like, wh what did the political institutions look like? And then we could talk about the actual material reality this resulted for the folks there. Sure. So uh, one thing to note is Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, they were fully subsumed into the Soviet Union. So unlike Poland or other, other uh, so-called puppet states, uh, they weren't independent countries at all. So they were kind of akin to a province or a state. Um, and as such, they were um, really centrally controlled from Moscow. And from the get-go, there were a couple things that are important here. Uh, one of them is the idea of uh, Russification or, so or Sovietization. Um, and this is the idea that, so, uh, you know, famously after World War II, uh, 
Stalin toasts to the Russian state, uh, which would you know sort of be like saying after World War II, congratulations, Texas, you won the war, right? Um, the Russian state is one uh, of many, uh, I think it was 15, you know, separate uh, Soviet states. Um, and so he was tipping his hat that even though they are a nation of equals, there is one that is more equal than the others, right? And that was Russia. And so right from the get-go, the, uh, they sought to Russify the Estonians. They thought that the, the, the Russians had a better uh, understanding of socialism. They had you know, been doing it for 17 years. They had, a, they, um, had figured all, out all the kinks, um, which clearly they had not. You know, they, had, they presided over, a, 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 was it 7 million people who died in the terrible famines? Uh, uh, so they clearly had not uh, worked out the kinks, but they still had this sort of arrogance about them. And so a very early and important part of it is the idea of moving Russians into Estonia and trying to teach them and, and get them to uh, adopt the, the Russian way. The, from the Estonians, there was a, here's another dark joke. The, the joke was, how many five-year plans does it take before the Estonian standard of living is uh, depressed to the Russian level? <laughs> and the answer, the answer is actually uh, they never found out because the Estonians were always uh, wealthier than their uh, other uh, counterparts in the Soviet Union. They had had that, that period of time where they were on their own, uh, and so they were more productive. Uh, they also had, um, you know, the proximity to the West. They were also sort of viewed as a shop window for the Soviet Union. So the Soviets ended up, this is more important for later years, but they ended up giving them a little bit more economic freedom and more investment than they did in other places because they wanted to show off to the West because uh, Westerners would have more interaction with, with the Estonians. Um, okay, so Russification is a really important part. And then the other important part I would say is there is this really deep and strong connection between um, trying to control the economy and trying to control the people. You can't really separate it. Okay. So um, a couple ways that this, you know, plays out. One of them is this sort of bizarre uh, experiment with communal living. So they believed that, you know, not only did we have to take, uh, did they have to take the uh, bicycles and cars and productive property from, from people, but they also, if you were in a house where the average person had more than nine square square meters, Think about that. That's three by three. That's too much. That's too bourgeois. So they forced you to divide up your home and let strangers into it. And, and so the people who lived through this, um, you know, there's there's one quote from somebody who was uh, exiled, which uh, being exiled is uh, one of the worst things that can happen to you. And he actually described communal living as worse than that, because part of what they did was they, if they thought you were somehow suspect or maybe not going to be the best socialist, um, they made sure that there were NKVD and then KGB. The NKVD was the predecessor of the KGB. There were, there were agents in your home with you all the time, sharing your, your stove, right? Um, so that it was, you, you felt like you just couldn't be yourself. You had no room of your own, right? To, to, um, uh, you know, express yourself. So, um, Right from the get-go, they sent in, as soon as the Red Army came in, they sent in the NKVD, uh, and they started interviewing everybody over the age of 12. Now, remember, in the Soviet Union, there's two important things. You could be held criminally uh, responsible at the age of 12, and 
the types of crimes that you could be held responsible for were things like being related to someone who was held responsible for a crime. So if you were 12 and your parents were, were deemed enemies of the state, that was one of the most popular uh, you know, crimes to charge people with, uh, you could be arrested. So they start interviewing anybody um, over the age of 12. They start assessing, you know, how big of a threat are you to the, to the system? And they systematically deported people, you know, right from the get-go. They put them on, um, there was, there's two major deportations, one in 41 when the Soviets had, had control for nine months before the Germans swept through. And then a second one in 44, uh, which was, the first one was more urban, so they put them on these big uh, cattle car trains and shipped them east to the happier east, they said. Um, men and women and children were separated, sent to different parts of the country. A big part of this is um, uh, the men were sent to slave labor camps. So about 16 to 18% of the entire Soviet economy, the uh, labor force, was slave labor. Um, that's how they managed to do things like this, the ridiculous, uh, you know, white sea canal and other crazy projects that, uh, ended up in tens of thousands of people dying. Um, and it was useless projects. They, they, managed, they managed to do some, some semi-impressive things, but they did it with, uh, slave labor. Um, okay. So then the, um, so the Russification and then sort of this interconnection between uh, you know, personal freedom and economic freedom. I think those are the two key characteristics. We'll get to uh, collectivization of agriculture here in a second, but maybe I'll turn it over to Pete to elaborate on any of that. No, I think that, that uh, you know, this issue of Russification becomes so crucial to, uh, as Matt pointed out, the Estonians had this strong uh, cultural identity, and now that's trying to be squashed. And so when they actually get to their moment where of ex- resistance, they resist with their cultural heritage. So it's important. I'm getting ahead of ourselves, but it's important to remember that Mart Lahr, who became the first democratically elected prime minister, was a history teacher and then started the Estonian his, uh, Heritage Society. He was one of the founders of that. And so this is all about resisting now. Why is that such a big thing? Step back for a minute and think about what's gone on in Ukraine. It's the same thing. It's Russification, which is one of the reasons why, you know, and and so that that was a policy that they had. It goes back to Matt's point about, uh, you know, uh, not all states are equal. (laughs) They're all equal, but, you know, some are not as equal as others. And uh, and so they tried to have this hegemonic Russian culture imposed on all these places. And then that you know, created the problems that it did. The other aspect about, uh, you know, you know, as you might expect from authors like Matt and I, you know, we see this through a lens of a blended kind of Austrian economics, public choice economics, and, and institutional economics kind of mix. And we take the best ideas from them, and then we form what we consider to be the fundamental problems that any socialist system would confront and then try to identify the particular illustrations of that with regard to, in the example of Poland or in the example of, of Estonia. And so it's playing that out, you know, that interconnectedness between political and economic liberties that is such a, a fundamental storyline in the history of socialism. Um, and let me just, this goes back to like, you know, again, thinking about the youth uh, and drawing general lessons. One of the things about Hayek when he came to Britain 
which was fascinating, was remember, it's on the heels of the Great Depression. Right. And so if you, if you look at prior between World War One and, and World War Two, the British economy had only had less than double digit unemployment one year. Right. They were you know, we, we talk about like Japan having the lost decade. That, that's kind of you know where Britain was at at the time. Right. So every you know, in the in the standard narrative was the reason for that wasn't because of excessive government, but because of the. Uh, instability of unbridled capitalism, monopoly power, these kind of things like that. So most of the economists that Hayek ran into would share with him their liberal values. They wanted to have liberalism of institutions. I mean, that's the, the birthplace of classical liberalism is in the Scottish Enlightenment and the institutions of the, the British uh, you know, rule of law and that kind of stuff. But they would say to him, you know, these are his colleagues at the LSE, they would say, listen, I am a socialist in my economics because I'm a liberal in my politics. And Hayek was like, time out. You can't have socialism and liberalism because you're going to violate the rule of law. So the, the first line of attack in the road to serfdom is against what? He's arguing that you can't be a socialist and democratic and you can't be a socialist and have the rule of law, right? Those are what's the main arguments is and in the road to serfdom. He's trying to show the logic of why it is that the interconnectedness of planning will eliminate the ability to have the kind of political freedoms that you take for granted. And I think that argument is extremely relevant to the young, again, because they think they can square this circle. They can get, you know, the kind of nice liberal institutions, but that can control the economy. So they don't have, you know, the 99% and, you know, I mean, or they can realize the 99% rather than the 1% and these kind of things like that. The other thing, um, I guess that, uh, well, let me, let, let's just get back to more specifics. So let, let, let's go on to your next question. Sure. Yeah. And actually, before we dive into that, because that'll probably be a big one, it's actually a good place to take our break. So we'll do that right now. Uh, everyone, you're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Pete Betke and Matt Mitchell today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a huge thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Randy T. Simmons, Travis Smith, and John Robson. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, rate us on Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task, and check out the Institute for Liberal Studies. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Pete Betke and Matt Mitchell today. So, Jens, I think the first half was great. We covered a lot. We're still sort of within that pillar of conversation where we're discussing the realities Estonia faced from about 1944 to 1991 under the uh, USSR. Um, tailing right off where we left with what Pete was saying right before the break, um, he was sort of saying, let's return back to like the specifics. So that's exactly the next question I had on my list. So I'll, th- I'll throw it back to you, Matt. Did you want to, and again, I'll always encourage listeners to check out the work itself, which we will link in the podcast notes, but did you want to trace some of the things that and uh, that you folks actually measured and brought into the paper and showed, okay, this is the kind of material reality the folks in Estonia were dealing with. What were the findings there? Sure. So uh, one point uh, that's, I think, worth measuring is we, we have uh, a, an idea of, we sort of have a way of quantifying the effect of control on the population. And you can see this in the attempts to collectivize agriculture. 
Yeah. Uh, so remember, uh, this is, you know, an area where just Stalin was so um, really just so pigheaded. He did not want to learn from any of the terrible mistakes that had happened in Ukraine and elsewhere. And he, and he was insistent on collectivizing agriculture. Um, and so the way they did this, so the, the idea of a collective farm uh, they, was that you have like 300 farmers uh, in an area and they, they sort of voluntarily was the idea. Uh, it's not really that voluntary as we'll get to, but they voluntarily join a collective where you now share your produce with the other 299 farmers. You also share your um, productive property, like the tractors and the mules and, and the cows and whatnot. And so, you know, you can sort of, if you've been in a econ 101 class, you can start to think through how the incentive problem is <laughs> a little wacky here. You, you, if you now have to share your produce with 299 other people, you're not going to have an incentive to get up early and stay up late and work extra hard. If you have to share your, your tractor or your horse with 299 other people, you don't have an incentive to take care of it. Um, and also this is deeply intertwined with culture. Uh, you know, these are people who've been farming the soil uh, for centuries. Uh, and so they didn't really, you know, feel that this, that they should be forced to collectivize. So um, the Soviets, you know, initially started with some kind of voluntary measures. They said, we're going to tax you if you don't form a collective, we're going to increase the taxes. We're going to have higher taxes if you're deemed a kulak. Um, this is important because um, this is an entirely made up designation. A kulak was, it's a old Russian word for fist. And it comes from the idea of, um, it was basically a, a wealthy farmer or a, or a uh, wealthy peasant who maybe got their wealth uh, ill-gotten. Um, in the case of, of uh, Estonia, uh, the way people were actually designated as kulaks was just arbitrary. The, there were three people in a local community who were empowered to do it. Uh, I think it was the, uh, the local party leader, um, the local NK, NKVD uh, leader, um, and the head of the local government. And as one of them put it, and we quote it in the book, we just created kulaks out of thin thin air. We just whoever we decided was a kulak was a kulak. So the kulaks were, were specifically targeted for higher taxes, but still the Estonians resisted. Um, and so then uh, in, in March 1949, the Soviets decided to get a little bit more serious. And in 10 days, they deported 50 to 60,000 Estonians. They, ra they rounded them up, they put them on American made Studebaker trucks, and they shipped them east. Um, we don't have great data on how many survived, but the, the personal accounts suggest that within a year or, or, or two, most of them are dead. Um, and so you can see, we've got a chart in the, in the book where you can see the percentage of Estonians that are interested in joining collective farms, and it's well under 10%. Then March 1949, it zooms up in a, in a number of days to over 70%. So this, again, shows the connection between control uh, per, over personal lives and economic lives. If you want to force people to collectivize economically, you've got to use extraordinary repression of their, of their personal lives. So uh, then you can see what happens, you know, to the productivity of agriculture. So in um, the period before uh, collectivization, Estonian agricultural output was growing at about a rate of 10% a year. Um, in the period afterwards, it was collapsing at a rate of negative 2% a year. So, you know, just like that, you change the incentives and you suddenly change uh, the 
what, what's happening in terms of uh, the output. Um, Pete, do you want to add anything to any of that? No, I mean, I think this this last point is the economic point about the incentives and, and everything like that. The earlier uh, point about the kulaks and stuff, that is a very important sort of social history understanding of things, because after the war, um, you know, obviously the Nazi crimes against humanity were considered genocide. And that's because they targeted the Jewish people and that was considered an ethnicity. The Stalin's crimes against humanity, which is multifold, but one of the main ones is, of course, the Ukrainian famine. Um, and that also was because they used the kulaks as the target. And kulaks are considered an economic class, not a ethnicity. And so as a result, the United Nations never con condemned these issues as genocides. All right. And so as as uh, Stephen Rosefield, who's an economic historian that taught at University of North Carolina for most of his career, he published a book in the, in the mid what, 2016 or something like that called The Red Holocaust to try to bring to light uh, this sort of idea to everyone so they can understand it. But it, ha it just hasn't resonated, right? I mean, because people like have not identified it as a genocide. And so, you know, uh, there's, you know, there's, uh, you know, we invoke Orwell at various times uh, in these books. And, and you know, he who controls the past controls the future is a very important idea. And, and that is very relevant for our discussion with kids today, because we got to really try to get them to understand the consequences and the human tragedy that's involved in this, um, you know, in these episodes. And so I think, you know, Matt and I do a, a pretty decent job of communicating uh, that, uh, uh, that um, magnitude of the problem, right? And this, the other thing that I, I will mention is we quote, um, Vas again, this is a little bit of getting ahead of ourselves, but we quote Václav Havel. Um, and he, of course, was the, you know, poet, playwright who became, you know, the head of the, the che Czechoslovakia after uh, the Velvet Revolution. Um, and, and he was extremely articulate and, and very, um, you know, powerful public intellectual. Right. And he described the consequences of living the lie. Uh, the consequences of living the lie for the moral character of the people in those own countries, because they had to state constantly something. This goes back to your kitchen story. They had to constantly state one thing and live another reality another way. And so this living the lie took place not only in their personal lives, but in their economic lives. Right. And so, again, you know, one of the ways in which a lot of these uh, you know, people survived and, and in some cases thrived during this period of, of extreme things was to rely on extra legal economic arrangements to find ways to engage in trade, even when everyone around them is engaged in raid. You know, you have a, 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 an economist that's closely associated with the, your institute there. That's my colleague, Vincent Geloso. And he has this mm -hmm. great paper called Trade versus Raid. <laughs> you know, basically right. it's a choice. Do you trade or do you raid? And what Matt was describing was, is that they were set up in a world where the Soviet Union was raiding on them all the time, right? But yet in those pockets, you find people. So again, as Matt's talking about with collectivization, you know, there's people the way find that, you know, the yields on the private plots that they have on the side outproduces the collective, you know, farm. And that's a universal characteristic. Mm. 
And, you know, Matt and I are economists. So, you know, one of the first rules of economics is incentives matter. <laughs> and so we like to sort of we're trying to hammer that point home to the to young people as well is that, look, you know, incentives matter. And here is the most stark example you could imagine, which is collective farming versus, you know, any uh, segment of private farming that's left. And that's true right. whether or not we're talking about Estonia, you know, the Soviet Union, China, wherever, you know, we, we find it as a pattern across all of these areas. Mm-hmm. Well, and there's also, you know, sort of a, that's all an excellent point. And, and on the, the idea of the rating, uh, you know, there is an economics of rating. There's an economic logic to everything that goes on there. Um, you could call it the uh, economics of rent seeking or privilege seeking or pathology of privilege. It's got, it goes by a number of names, but you right. can really see it play out. And one of the ways you see it play out. So we, uh, I, I, a lot of your audience is, is going to be familiar with the Austrian idea and the Hayekian idea, um, the Sessian idea that uh, in a socialist state, it's really difficult to figure out what to produce, how to produce it, where to produce it without guides of prices, oh, because prices, yeah. profit, think, and loss uh, as emerging through a market process help determine. We'll a sec, I guess. Here he is. Oh, sorry. Sorry, did I, did, you, did I cut out for a second? Yeah. Yeah, you are back and you froze right at the, uh, you, you were just saying the Misesian idea that in a socialist state. So if you want to restart that sentence yeah, and go from there, that. then we'll catch that. No worries. So yeah, in a, in th- this is the idea uh, known as the knowledge problem that without prices that emerge from people trading voluntarily uh, private property rights, um, we really have no way of gauging um, people's value, their subjective uh, preferences for what they want, their subjective preferences for how they want to behave and how they want to produce. And so as a result, you end up uh, it's very difficult to figure out what the right price is. Now, the interesting thing is the Austrian problem could result in prices that are too high, um, in which case um, you're going to get a, um, a surplus or prices that are too low, in which case you're going to get a shortage. Um, but in the, in the Soviet economies, it was pretty systematic. We know empirically the prices were almost always too low uh, because they were, it was far more common, at least in consumer goods, not necessarily in producer goods, but in consumer goods, there were shortages were the rule. And the way you understand this, the way you can reconcile, how do you, why was it that they could have gotten the prices wrong either way? Why did they always get them wrong in one direction or tend to? And the way you understand that is looking at the logic of um, the control problem and the, and the, the logic of rating or, or um, uh, rent seeking. And if you are a manager in a socialist stop, shop, you have a very strong incentive to purposely engineer shortages yeah. because by doing so, you can then share, you can then sell that, that product on the black market. Right. And so people would buy stuff, whether it had any value or not, just because it was so limited, they thought maybe they could trade it. And so people then had an incentive to hoard as well, uh, consumers as well as, as producers. So the whole system sort of has a logic. The other thing is um, unable to actually gauge people's preferences. They were left with what seemed like really naive and really stupid ways of gauging how much they should produce. And one of the things that they did was weight counts. So they would literally reward people based on what's the tonnage of what you produced. So now you get ridiculous outcomes like um, people producing uh, really thick, fat nails that are not uh, at all useful because it's easier to produce 
uh, you know, 10 fat nails than a hundred thin nails. Right. right. Uh, and so one way you can see this, and this is really tragic is weight counts even went down to the idea of arrests. So the, the NKVD and the uh, KGB, they had uh, targets, they had quotas that they had to fill. Uh, they had weight counts. And so, you know, there's a story of one uh, woman shows up in the um, local police station to report a missing neighbor. Uh, the neighbor had actually been arrested. She didn't know that. And they arrested her because why? There's no crime, but um, they needed to fill their quota. So, so Solsha Nietzsche talks about that in, in uh, uh, Gulag Archipelago. So, um, you know, it's this inter- interesting and bizarre interaction and logic uh, of, of, its, of the collective state that is... Uh, uh, you know, really on display here. Yeah, I think that's worth highlighting. The, you know, the, that line between it's not that there's no incentives for people to do things; it's that there's there, then you turn around, you get the perverse and other type of incentives. Yeah, they're bad incentives. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I wanted and, to um, just add something well, in there about, um, you know, just a sort of uh, one of the things about capturing socialist reality is opening up to broader sets of data than you would normally do in a Western capitalist economy. Right. So, you know, if I if I want to, you know, understand how the U.S. economy is going, not perfectly, but I can kind of, you know, look up in, in some statistics and look at GDP and things like that. But in, in, in these economies, so much of their reality of their life was mismeasured on purpose. <laughs> and and right. it was, you know, so you have to kind of reconstruct a lot of things. The Soviet period, one of the best. Uh, places to find about their economic and their uh, social life is actually through jokes that they told. Um, there's a, a, a great documentary <clears throat> that was came out um, when communism was just collapsing back in the in the uh, late 1980s, early 1990s. It's called Hammer and Tickle. Uh, so if you can find a um, uh, a link to it. You should put it in the chat for the readers or whatever, <clears throat> listeners. Um, but, uh, you know, what Matt was just talking about. So, you know, one of a Soviet joke was a state shortage of buns and a state shortage of sausage ends up by being a sandwich sold out the back window. Right. So exactly, you know, what he, he was just talking about. And of course, we're all familiar with the magazine Crocodile and, and its picture of the one ton nail, which is making fun of the output measures. But there's also, as Matt pointed out, tragedy of all this stuff when they opened up the archives and that comes out in the Yale University Press, uh, you know, books that came out in the early 1990s when they were looking at the extent of the, the horrors of, of Soviet collectivization, not just in the agriculture, but the idea of the purges and the trials and all these things like that. The use of terror, the reign of terror in order to enforce discipline on its people that they would get. Exactly what Matt said. They get bonuses if they got more people rather than less. So, you know, Stalin would say something like, kill every third male in that village. And they would come back and say, Comrade Stalin, we killed every other male in the village. And he'd say, okay, you got a good bonus or whatever. And so this is the way that they tried to enforce their things. And that reality of the sheer inhumanity, but on top of it, the system that's the infrastructure of it, which is the whispering, the idea that you live a life where you whisper between each other because you're afraid of anyone hearing you. And then among those who whisper, someone is whispering to a government official up, up top. So, you know, in East Germany, when East Germany fell, 
and was absorbed into West Germany, uh, Vera Wallenberg, she was the leader of the church from below. She demanded to see her Stasi file. Like, I need to see my Stasi file. And she was the first person to ever see the Stasi file. And the main informant on her was her husband, who was a plant from the secret police to like, look at, you know, and so she had lived an entire life Wait, was that? And so this is captured a little bit in the movie The Lives of Others, which is about East German uh, surveillance state. And and this issue that's associated with that, they're not, it's not like unique just to those. What I'm trying to say is that they're not like the totalitarian aspects of these societies are the unattended, undesirable consequences. They're not where you start. They're where you end up because of the logic that Matt's talking about. So this is what people are missing when they think that they can fix it with modifiers. Oh, I'm going to use this modifier and then socialism will be okay. It's the logic of socialism and practice that produces the bad outcome. It's not that the bad outcome is what was the original aspiration. And I think if we do anything to help suggest understand or provide that understanding to readers then we have done our job because it's the logic it's the play between the 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 organizational and and economic logic that's involved that leads to these consequences of severe repression yeah absolutely i think it's an evergreen point again that as you said at the beginning pete as well to use your words there's not uh, we don't start with a bunch of people rubbing their hands together right that's not the way this works one other reference is there's a a great book called the house of government and it relate again it's more russia soviet russia but it's 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 the politburo it's how they got special apartments depending on where they sat in the government but if you read it it's it's like a primer on public choice. It's exactly what, what Matt was talking about, the, the pathology of privilege, which is, is Matt's uh, terminology, uh, which I think is just brilliant. But the, the pathology of privilege in a extreme form is played out in the House of Government. And it's, it's played out in a less extreme form in Parliament and Congress here in the U.S. But imagine if what you did was like, you know, like put that on steroids then what you would get is this kind of example. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm just minding the time here, gents. I think like I, I would love if we could talk about this for three hours. Our episodes don't go that long. So oh. I am unfortunately do have to move us into the next step of the conversation to make sure we get that in, which is, and I hate, and I will encourage listeners again, go read the book we've been talking about. There's a lot more information there. We covered one great pillar and, and measure of, uh, the kind of things and the material realities. And also we talked a lot about the social re- and political realities that the folks faced uh, between about 1944 and, and, and 91. Um, at some point, and I hate to summarize it like this, but um, things did turn the corner. So let, let's, let's talk about what the singing revolution was, Matt. And, uh, and then we can also get into the final uh, pillar of the conversation, which is also, you know, the final chapter of the book, ultimately the building a free society part. So can you, can you take us to sort of the end of the, this, this uh, crest of the wave that was uh, the USSR portion of Estonia's history and, and what bridged into the next chapter here? Yes, absolutely. So a couple of things to remember here, and this goes back to something Pete was saying earlier about Gorbachev is uh, because Estonia was part of the Soviet Union and not just a satellite state, this meant that they, uh, the Soviets really resisted reforms in, in Estonia and the other Baltics much more than they did elsewhere, uh, especially political reforms. And so even as they're, be, as they're talking about openness, 
um, there's one thing that they cannot talk about, which is the Soviet Nazi pact, because acknowledging that essentially acknowledges the illegal annexation of these states, which, by the way, many Western countries, Canada, the U.S. never did accept. Um, so what the, the singing revolution starts with the phosphate spring. So we often hear, you know, this idea that, um, well, gosh, if if we just leave it up to the profit motive, we're going to exploit the environment and, um, you know, kill the, the, the natural resources upon which we all depend. The truth was, uh, of course, that we, if you leave it up to the um, profit motive, you often can make much more logical and sound decisions towards the environment than you would uh, if you just leave it up to this logic of control. Uh, and the the Soviet record on pollution is just absolutely atrocious, and this is true in Estonia. So really, the very first cracks, the very first um, opposition to the Soviet Union in Estonia, the ones that were successful, was a environmental protest for yet more phosphate um, mining, which had already despoiled much of Estonia. If it had been left to the profit motive, there would be no more phosphate mining because the phosphorus in the ground there was not useful. Uh, it was not economical, but the Soviets didn't have that measure of profit to care. So they just were go plowing ahead with, with plans to do more phosphate mining. And the Estonians started protesting it, and it actually worked. They actually got the Soviets to back down. So that's the first one. Then they start holding these um, rallies where they start talking openly about the, um, the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. Now, what inter interesting thing that happens is um, some of these rallies uh, occur on the um, spontaneously on the festival grounds. And so they would do these annual festivals, singing festivals, for many decades, the Soviets actually let them do it, but they just had to sing, instead of singing love songs to the Estonian people, they had to sing love songs to Stalin. Uh, and what ended up happening is spontaneously people show up at these grounds and they start singing actual love songs to Estonia. They start singing love songs to the Estonian resistance, to the forest brothers who are uh, people who hid out in the, in the woods and disrupted the, for, the, the Soviet Union for decades. Um, and, uh, the, the momentum gathered. Um, at one point, you had on one in, on one occasion uh, three hundred thousand Estonians showing up on the uh, the grounds. Th this is a country of a million people. So you have one in three three uh, citizens from the entire country are showing up, uh, and they're singing. Uh, and so it was pretty quickly dubbed the singing revolution. And it was pointed out that you know here's the mighty evil empire. Um, nobody thought left, right, middle that it would ever fall without a, you know, terrible conflagration. And here it was essentially felled not by bullets, but by song. Um, another thing they did is called the, either the Baltic way or the, um, uh, the Baltic chain. And they coordinated with, uh, people from Latvia and Lithuania and they held hands mm -hmm. in a 670 kilometer human chain of 2 million people. And when did they do it? August 23rd on the, uh, you know, the anniversary of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. Um, and so these types of protests just sort of um, built the momentum. And ultimately what happened is just as they had taken advantage of the Russian Revolution to declare their independence in 1920, they did the same thing 
uh, and took advantage of chaos in, in the, uh, the failed uh, Russian coup against, from the hardliners against uh, Gorbachev in 1991. They declared their independence and they managed to obtain uh, their freedom. And let, let's continue that. So, so what what did that freedom look like? I mean, I know again we're covering a lot here in, in just a podcast episode, but what what did this institutional ch- change look like? Uh, what what things started to happen that didn't happen before? How did the political, economic, and social realities actually change? So, uh, you know, politically they had went back, essentially uh, had a modified version of the previous constitution. There was a, a big emphasis on continuity since they. In their mind, they had never actually been annexed. They had just illegally been occupied. Um, And so they set up a a parliamentary system with a president and a prime minister. President was mostly ceremonial. The prime minister was um, made most of the decisions as as Pete um, made a uh, suggested. It was Mart Lahr, who was this historian, who was the first democratically elected prime minister. And he deserves a lot of credit for really pushing Estonia very far towards, you know, I would say it's a relatively radical change. They wanted to move uh, to free markets very quickly. So they, one thing uh, really extraordinary, almost unheard of in the modern era is they unilaterally eliminated all tariffs. Uh, You don't really find that. Um, This was a big down payment on other reforms, because if you're saying that your companies are open to competition uh, from anybody in the world, and then now you suddenly have to make sure that those com- those companies have the economic freedom to be able to um, to to prosper. Um, they privatized very quickly. Um, in many cases, trying to emphasize previous owners. So there's a story of one uh, woman, a widow, who uh, went into her backyard and dug up a tin. In it, she found the uh, deed to her commercial property that had been taken five decades earlier. And she took it down to the government and she said, here's my property. Here's, here's my property. Right. And they said, yep, that's your property. Right. And you got it back. Um, so they really tried to privatize as quickly as possible, uh, introduced the world's first flat tax. Um, they, uh, went to a, a very, uh, sort of aggressive form of, um, monetary, uh, policy where they, they forced the, uh, they, they created a, a monetary board that uh, put the Estonian kroon, um, uh, made it exchangeable for the mark. Um, so just like overnight, they got a hard currency and uh, this rapid inflation just disappeared. Um, what am I missing, Pete? Uh, no, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, uh, the they, they also did a few things, you know, which were very strong politically. You know, so like, uh, you know, they, they didn't... One of the big ones is they gave citizenship to those who were in the diaspora. Um, and so uh, Estonians who had left, um, they eliminated from uh, the ability to run for office people that were in the secret police or had held, held high office. Um, they uh, they uh, didn't let the Russians, you know, sort of that had been living there for a long time. They were not given the citizenship rights. This goes back to the Russification thing. But I think from an economic point of view, uh, one of the things that all of this did was it also allowed them to uh, pursue a very radical set of reforms that went from monetary all the way to, you know, fiscal and trade and everything. And trade, of course, is huge, as Matt mentioned. And we know this social science 
typically. Um, Sachs, Jeff Sachs and, and Andrew Warner published a paper in the 1990s showing that the countries that were under reform that liberalized their trade, led with trade liberalization, had greater success. And those who tried to maintain the tariffs and whatnot, but privatize internally, they ended up by not having as much success. And part of that is, as Matt says, it, 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 it commits you to the idea that you're going to face an alternative supply network. So you need to have competitive markets. Otherwise, you're just going to have your companies disappear. And so this is what, you know, so they really adopted a very extreme set of what we, I wouldn't call it extreme. I would say it, what economics teaches us, but people to the outside call it extreme. And, uh, and, and, you know, the way Laura put it was, we just do it, right? We're just going to do it. And so they, they had the moral legitimacy. They had the cultural heritage and they introduced these policies. They were very well located, as Matt said. So when they opened themselves up to trade, all of Europe is right there for them. And, uh, and they were able to do it. The other thing, uh, that Matt, you know, might want to talk about is also is that they were innovators in e-government. And part of that also fits with their youthfulness. What did, what did you put it, Matt? You said an ancient people in a young country or whatever. Well, with the election of Mart Lahr, he's only 32. And even though the president is older, he was a tech wizard. And so, you know, so the president, the, the, the one who's the figurehead, he was this guy who was an innovator in technology. And, you know, to give you a little line, we quote him in here as saying when he came to the United States, his best visit was with Bill Gates, not with Bill Clinton. So he, he didn't care about visiting with Bill Clinton. He cared about visiting with Bill Gates. Um, and, and it's kind of fascinating when you think about like what Estonia has been a leader in doing. And so now, we're, you know, what we've just done is talk about what they did in, in, uh, you know, name, you know, what are the consequences of this? Right. And, and one of the consequences are, and I, I alluded to earlier was that, you know, you ended up by having, uh, you know, something like 50% of the population was living in poverty to now like 2.8% of the population lives in poverty, uh, per capita income levels have shot up far beyond the trend line. So one of the things that, that Matt and I did, in both in a monographs, which I think is very powerful, this is what I was talking about with the statistics before, is you look at a trend line of per capita income of what you would have projected their growth rate would have continued in 1992, let's say. And you play that out like this, okay? And then what you do is you look at like what happened after they got their reforms. And then you look at the trend line and it's like, boom, like this. Similarly with life expectancy. You know, so like basically the upshot of this is that you give people freedom, they live longer and more prosperous lives. And when they live longer and more prosperous lives, they do other kinds of things that they like with their, you know, it's not just for their material comfort. It's, uh, right. you know, just, a, you know, again, a, a cross reference. I just listened to the to the uh, a recent talk by Bill Easterly. Um, called um, paternalist versus liberals in development economics. And one of the things that Easterly chides economists for is spending too much time on material progress. And what we have to remember is that ultimately development is about agency and also, uh, you know, dignity. So you want to have dignity for the people in a country, recognize their dignity. And I think this is one of the things that's related to the personal freedoms 
This is a country that gave dignity to its people, recognize that ordinary people can do extraordinary things if you just give them the freedom to do so. And you don't need to have extraordinary people being given extraordinary powers. And so it's a, it's, it's a really impressive story, I think, of how it is that you can whip <laughs> uh, very dire circumstances with very committed policy. And I think that's relevant in all of our countries in the way we think about this. But again, if you look at their, they went through monetary reform, tax reform, uh, fiscal reform, trade reform, privatization, regulation, and hard budget constraints. Right. And so we have right. a chart on page 102 of the book, which goes through these and that area around that all summarizes that stuff. But I mean, it's, it's a pretty, it's a comprehensive package that yields amazing results. Yeah, no, and I, I th I'm I'm glad you ran through some of those stats and some of those figures there, Pete, because I was actually going to ask just about that. So that's awesome. I mean, Matt, for for your part on that sort of conclusion point, if you will, I mean, do you think it's too much of an is it an unfair or flippant thing to say that it's it's truly a story from one of the depths of hell and back, or is that actually kind of pretty much what happened here? No, I mean, I think that is it, it really captures it, um, and it's a good lesson for those of us who are you know stuck in Western societies that seem sclerotic right now, uh, and our politics seems hopelessly mired, um, and change seems impossible. Um, you know, when you have seen the the worst of the worst, uh, it's in some ways the opposite path looks so obvious, uh, and there. In retrospect, there's some things like, you know, the, the, the so-called Washington consensus, this list of reforms. Um, people have sort of in retrospect reinvented history and made it seem like this was controversial. Really, it wasn't. Um, I mean, it was called the Washington consensus for a reason. Uh, almost everybody agreed, yeah, we need to cut taxes, uh, privatize, um, allow prices to determine their own, be determined through the market, um, set monetary policy on some stricter rules. Um, there, this, this stuff wasn't all that controversial. What was maybe slightly controversial was how quickly we do it. Um, that, you know, from the get-go people, there were, there was, you know, I think legitimate disagreement over, do we go fast or do we go slow? And the interesting thing is this too has been really well studied and it's pretty clear. It's not just Estonia. If you look across, uh, there's several papers and we, and we cite them. Uh, Greer and Greer is, is one of them. Uh, Lawson and Lawson is one, is another one. Um, father, daughter, and uh, uh, husband, wife for both of those papers. Um, so these, uh, you look across countries and you just find that those who move quicker and, and reform more comprehensively, they just had better outcomes. Um, this isn't to say it's, there isn't pain. You know, there were people who benefited from the socialist regime. There's no doubt about it. And if, uh, as Pete puts it in one of his books, uh, you know, in 1990, the truth is most people got up and did the wrong job in the wrong place in the wrong industry. <laughs> and when you're, that's, when that's your mindset, there's going to be pain when you are suddenly facing, you know, sink or swim type incentives where you better start doing the, the right job in the right place and with uh, in the, in the right industry or else you're not going to be able to have a job. That's hard. And we're not going to paper over that, that that's difficult, but um, the, the, the difficulty was created by the huge misallocation of resources and the, and the problems associated with socialism, uh, facing the quicker you face up to that reality and change, the better. There's a great line, Alex, by, uh, Randy Holcomb, who's a great economist 
wrote a, a book recently called uh, Political Capitalism. And uh, he has a great line. He says, creative destruction is, is welcomed by those who want to get ahead and despised by those who are ahead. And that's true whether or not you're in the socialist system or in the capitalist system. And so one of the main things is to try to constrain that ability of individuals to thwart the creative destruction uh, uh, of, uh, you know, existing institutions and existing mm-hmm. uh, ways of, of producing and, and whatnot. And I think mm-hmm. that, um, you know, what you asked the question about having to do like lessons from all these things. I mean, it's as such a we're having this discussion right now. I don't know enough to comment in any depth, but like in Argentina and the way people are talking about what he's trying to do in Argentina, we tend to forget that right now Argentina, what he inherited in Argentina was a basket case, 136%, you know, um, uh, like monthly inflation and, you know, all these things like that. You know, Estonia in the in the early to 1990s was over a thousand annual inflation rate and they're able to bring it down. And so, you know, facts have to matter at some level. Right. And so, you know, this whole reinterpretation of this period, what they call neoliberalism, it never really comes to grip with the fact that in 2015, was the first time in human history less than 10% of the world's uh, world's population was living in extreme poverty. Now, that doesn't mean the world's perfect. It doesn't mean the job is done, but it does mean something miraculous just happened. When I was studying economics as an undergraduate, 40% of the world's population was living in extreme poverty. In 2015, that number is less than 10%. What's the cause of that? Trade. Opening up trade and globalization and all of that. And so you might want to say that, oh, you know, I don't like this, that or that about it. But you have to start with the baseline that billions of people have been lifted from, you know, miserable poverty. And um, and so, you know, when we look at these data here, it's pretty, you know, drastic what the positives are in what's happened in Estonia and in our earlier, uh, you know, uh, work on Poland as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, that actually what you're just saying there, Pete, I think uh, enters nicely into the, the sort of last question I want to ask before we, we formally wrap up. So I, the last question, I, and I want to throw it to both of you ultimately, because um, it was mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, there's a, there's a thread of it in what you just said, Pete, there too, which is, um, on the one hand, yes, it's absolutely true that I think um, a lot of folks today might have a distant memory or, or no memory or a little grasp on, you know, what, what the horrors of like state socialism, the USSR and so on and so forth really brought to people. And, uh, you know, we sort of see that some people do find ideas like that or close to it, sort of that kind of state social idea appealing now. But it seems on the other hand, we also have those that, uh, at least in, in speaking, would reject state socialism and go in that direction, but are still into some level of an, you know, you know, uh, industrial planning and so on and so forth. Um, you know, I, I hate to use left and right like this just very vaguely, but, you know, let's just say for the sake of this discussion that we can see folks on the left and the right now very openly talking about not necessarily whether we should be spending, taxing and planning the economy, but really how we do it. Um, and, and that's an interesting thing. Um, I guess I just want to throw to both of you. Uh, I, I, we, we can start with Pete, then we'll go to Matt. Um, but just general thoughts on the idea that, for lack of a better sentence, lowercase l market liberals are sort of feeling the pinch from, quote, both sides at this point. At least that's what I've observed. I'm not sure if uh, we'll start with Pete. I'm not sure if that resonates. Do you have any thoughts on that? Then, then we'll go to Matt. Yeah, I'll, I'll try to be quick because I know I'm, I'm long winded. I apologize for that. But, um, you know, basically, we've seen in the last 
a decade, a rise of populism on both left and right. And uh, to invoke Orwell again, he said the future of humanity was a giant boot stepping on its face. And I like to point out to people, it doesn't matter whether or not the boot's on the left foot or the right foot. It's still a boot squashing on the face. And so I think one of the big puzzles that, you know, people like Matt and I have to try to explain is why did Estonia escape the trap that, say, the other post-Soviet economies didn't do? Like, why is it the other post-Soviet economies use these policies in name, but actually never really achieve them in practice? And they end up by having dire consequences, like, for example, in Russia, having an autocratic government for, you know, so many years. If you go back 20 years ago, you know, Putin was a liberal, right? You have to remember, he, you know, played himself off as a liberal. Why the hell did it go this way? And I think the big issue to try to get across to, say, national conservatives, or those on the democratic, you know, left, democratic socialists, is that the outcomes of these things are unattended, undesirable consequences of the logic of what Matt and I were talking about earlier, having to do with, you know, the knowledge problem, the control problem, and this issue of political, uh, basically pathology of privilege and everything that comes out of that. And so by, you know, so we, you know, what we do is we have three problems that we focus on theoretically knowledge problem, an incentive problem, and a control problem. And the issue is the interconnectedness between all three of those. And those are universal problems of just basic economics. And they are going to show their ugly head no matter where they find themselves. In a former Soviet republic, in a, a former colony in Africa, a, uh, a, an emerging economy in Latin America or in Asia. They're going to show up everywhere as long as we have these kind of things. And the unattended, undesirable consequences when you rely so much on government as a corrective is that you're going to end up with a situation which is not going to give economic freedom and will sacrifice personal freedoms in the end. And so this is sort of the important demonstration effect, I think, that's beyond these case studies. So uh, anyway, Matt, uh, you know, uh, Matt did great work on all of these things, and, and he he's, he's, was a driver on these projects, so he should have the last word. Yeah, well, Matt, then exactly over to you. Thoughts on the idea that, uh, you know, even in the arena of the idea that even even those who would say that they reject state socialism, communism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, uh, on their side of the coin, they still seem pretty uh, up for some good old industrial planning, uh, whether it be from the uh, economic or social side. So uh, any thoughts on that sort of arena? Yeah, I guess I would, what I would say is just we have to remind ourselves over and over how unintuitive a lot of our ideas are, if, if we're being honest. Uh, you know, if you, you're, you're raised in a family that is a uh, – most families are sort of run like a little socialist state. You know, you've got mom and dad who are making the decisions and they're determining what powers kid, the kids have. Resources come from outside. Um, if you want to do something, you, you, you create a plan and you just order that it be done. Um, and that logic can work, you know, for a time. And, and uh, hopefully you're not an autocrat <laughs> once your kids turn, turn their, become teenagers. But, uh, you know, that logic works for a little bit, but it doesn't apply to societies at large. And the idea of spontaneous order and emergent order and people coordinating without somebody controlling them and telling them how to coordinate, the idea that, you um, People can uh, profit by correcting mistakes. Uh, a lot of that just isn't intuitive. Um, and I do sort of feel like we have to constantly, every generation, 
come up with new ways to articulate some of these older truths and remind people of these truths. Uh, and we also, you know, as a people, as a species, I think we, um, are, we, we have a hard time appreciating, uh, change and appreciating, uh, we have a pessimism bias really just to put it, uh, uh, succinctly, you know, it, and it makes sense evolutionarily, right? If you're in the uh, savanna and there's a rustling in the, in the, in the bush, it's probably a prudent to assume it's a lion, not that it's wind, right? <laughs> so it's, we we're like hardwired to constantly be thinking about danger and to be thinking about those types of things. And that I think biases us to look at the bad headlines. It's, it's, uh, you know, a new year, uh, and there's a lot of good stories now, um, and that you can find about progress, uh, every, every, you know, I always try to remind myself on January of the new year to look at what are, what are the extraordinary, um, things that have happened that, you know, people lifted out of poverty, cancer cured, um, you know, all of these technological and social advances, uh, we, we are a far kinder, less violent, uh, more, uh, agreeable people than we've ever been. And a lot of this is, um, you know, as a result of spontaneous orders and liberalism, and we got to take stock of that and then figure out new ways to teach those lessons to, to new generations. That's great. Well, gents, I'm going to bring us to our formal wrap up then. Uh, we'll move away from our main conversation. We've of course talked about a lot. I want to bring the conversation full circle, see if we can f- put a finer point on our exploration of the question. Um, with both of you here, I'll toss it to Pete first, and then I'll toss it to Matt to take us out. But um, I know this is hard, but I always find it very useful to end an episode like this. Let me ask you, what do you hope, if you could pick one for a listener to take away, would be the main takeaways from our conversation today on what we can learn from Estonia and all the things we've talked about? In other words, if you wanted someone just to remember, if anything, one thing, Pete, we'll start with you. What would that be? Um, to summarize it in just a sentence, freedom works. And I think if, if, uh, people, uh, understood, uh, that, uh, freedom is interconnected, political, economic, and social freedoms are interconnected, not separate buckets. And, uh, that, uh, therefore the liberal order is the, uh, most efficient and most just social order that mankind can stumble towards. And therefore, we move towards a new resurgence of liberalism in the 21st century rather than statism. That would be my that would be my my hope. I I have one other hope, too. And this is more of an economic educational hope. I I hope that listeners realize that economics is a tool for the curious. It is not a catechism. It is a opening up of our eyes to seeing how the world works through the application of economic reasoning. And I, and I pray that the work that Matt and I have done with this, these two books, but also our earlier book, uh, you know, reflects that to young students and that they will be attracted to a set of ideas that will help fuel their curiosity, not dull their curiosity. And I think economics is a fascinating tool in that regard. Excellent. A a conclusion and a hope from Pete. Matt, how about a conclusion and a hope from you then? Well, I mean, Pete really said everything I was, I was going to say, I I think he cheated, but I was going to cheat too and and name a a good three lessons. Uh, So maybe spontaneous order here on the curious task. (laughs) I'll I'll just uh, steal from Mark Lawrence and say, uh, just do it. You know, if, if there's a, something that's difficult and it needs being done, don't just stand there, uh, clutching uh, your hands and worrying about it, just do it. 
think that's a great place to leave it. So Pete Betke, Matt Mitchell, thank you very much for both of you to join me on The Curious Task today. Thank you so much. Thanks, Alex. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchidiak, and Eric Segain. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. Thank you.